Um, again, welcome to Seven Hills Fellowship. We are glad you're here. We are in week two of a series called New. And uh, the reason that we are in the process of um, preaching through the series called New is because if you read through Scripture, um, over and over again, there, uh, we're told about um, sort of a new relationship that we have with God through Jesus. That's what we talked about last week. Essentially, what we talked about last week is we said, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is inviting us to remember our old standing or our old relation, relational structure with God, and that was that we were strangers, that we were aliens, right? And, uh, and in the Lord's Supper also, what Jesus was doing was he was inviting us to remember our new standing, to recall our new relationship with God, which is that we are declared righteous, that we are sons and daughters of, with God, that he's no, no longer angry with us. We're not strangers or aliens anymore, and that's good news. Um, this morning, we're talking about another element of the idea of uh, this new relationship with God. It's really a subset of that. And as Jeremy's already mentioned, and we've talked about it a little bit, it's this idea that we need a new record, that our old record was flawed, that our old record wasn't enough. And so God graciously has provided us with a new record that we may be declared not only not guilty, but that we might be declared righteous in his sight. So we're going to jump into that in a few moments, but first I'm going to pray, and, uh, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people in this room. I thank you, Father, that through faith, um, we can enter into a new relationship with you, that our old record um, can be forgiven, can be pardoned. And Father, that because of our faith in your son Jesus, we can have a declaration over us uh, that we are righteous, not because of any righteousness that we possess, but rather because of the righteousness of your son Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so, Father, I pray that today um, that fear would be removed, um, that trepidation would be calmed, Father, as we stand in this new relationship with you, understanding and realizing um, that, uh, that you have provided us with the new record uh, that we have needed. So, Father, we pray all these things today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, in a minute, I'm going to put a little YouTube clip up, and I'm going to set it up a little bit first. Um, I was the director of admissions at a college for four years, which, if you know me very well, uh, is just laughable. I think it's totally hilarious. Anyway, uh, I was a face, and I waved a lot, kind of like the Queen of England. No authority, but just a nice person. Anyway, but uh, one of the things that we had to do um, at Covenant College, where I was the director of admissions, was uh, we had an admissions committee, and that's where um, these you know, wonderful young kids, seniors in high school, had been working all their lives to be able to put together this essentially a resume uh, to justify why we should accept them into our particular college. Now, at Covenant, uh, we're a small school. We have a small endowment. And so uh, at the time, we were just like, hey, I'm looking for any excuse possible to let anybody in to, uh, to Covenant, and uh, we'll make some exceptions. Anyway, not all schools are that way. Uh, in fact, I'm about to show you a clip from a, a, a universe called Amherst, which is up in Massachusetts, which is a pretty exclusive, a pretty elitist school And uh, what we're going to see here is a little clip of their admissions committee.
That's just, it's a totally legit uh, admissions committee film. I mean, it's not made up or anything. It's real. Anyway, in fact, it was by Bloomberg um, Business who put that together. That's really the Amherst Admissions Committee. And I cut out, you know, several minutes of the YouTube clip, but it's really kind of funny. And so watch it if you will. Uh, But the reality is what's going on there is a group of um, professors and a group of people from um, the admissions department are essentially voting people in and out based upon their record, right? And, and so the reason I use that this morning is because the way that we approach God is very similar. You know, all those young men and young women for years have been trying to maybe not get into Amherst. Maybe they've been trying to get into Harvard, right? Maybe they've been trying to get into Princeton. Amherst is a little bit of a fallback, but they've been building this resume so that they could appeal to somebody in order to say, take me accept me, let me in. They build their resumes, right? And essentially, what uh, what we're told in Scripture is that uh, that's what we do with God. We try to build a resume with Him so that we go, hey, you know, I may not be the best, I may may not be perfect, but, but I'm better than those people. I'm pretty good. Will you please let me in? It's what Tim Keller calls a validating performance record. In other words, we try to justify ourselves before God by creating a validating performance record. Let me in, right? And what's interesting is, is that we all do this to some degree or another. I would argue that, uh, that what religious people do is pretty overt. It's, what pretty, it's pretty clear that religious people do this. They try to build their validating performance record, right? So let me give a couple examples really quickly. One of the things that religious people in or, do in order to build this validating performance record is they don't do bad things. So they try to limit the amount of bad things they do, right? And then they try to do some good things, and then they hold it up to God, and they say, you know, is it enough? Have I done enough for you to accept me, right? That's true whether you're a Buddhist or a Hindu. It's true whether you're a Catholic or, you know, of some other form of religion, you know, somebody who's Muslim. Everybody's doing the same thing, trying to do not too many bad things and plenty of good things in order that God might let them in. In fact, it's exactly how I lived my life, really, all the way until my first year of seminary. And, and so let me tell you that story really quickly. So I grew up in a Christian home, went to a solid uh, church where the gospel was proclaimed. I think I understood intellectually what the gospel was, that, uh, that I wasn't accepted by God based upon, uh, you know, my record, but rather upon uh, Christ's record on my behalf. I think I would have put that on the, que- you know, filled that in the blank on the test. But the reality is when I went to public high school, I basically defined myself as a Christian by what I didn't do. Right? So I worked hard not to drink, not to smoke, not to party, not to you know, be involved in other uh, uh, you know, unsavory activities. Right, And essentially, I was living in such a way so that regardless of what I would have filled in on that uh, blank on the test, I was basically acting and living in such a way so that I was saying, God, please accept me because of the absence of bad stuff in my life. In fact, I would feel like I could come to God and pray or not feel like I could come to God and pray based upon how I'd been doing recently. And it was a sign that in reality, I thought and was acting as if it was my validating performance record that got me access to God. When I got to college, I went to Covenant College Christian School up on Lookout Mountain, and I was surrounded by a lot of other people that also didn't do the bad stuff that I didn't do, right? And so I had to sort of redefine myself, and I started defining myself rather than defining myself by what I didn't do, I started defining myself by what I did do. So I volunteered um, with a local high school ministry, kind of like Young Life, going onto campuses and building relationships with high school kids and sharing the gospel. Uh, My junior and senior year, I was a junior high youth intern at a church up on Lookout Mountain. I volunteered and did all sorts of good stuff. 
And, uh, and again, what I was doing was I was basically saying, okay, God, not only am I not doing all this bad stuff, but now I'm doing all this good stuff. And again, regardless of what I would have filled in on that blank, what I was essentially saying to God is, please accept me because I don't have too much bad and I've got plenty of good, right? And, and I, again, would evaluate whether or not I felt comfortable coming into the presence of God praying or in worship, not based upon Jesus' record on my behalf, but based upon my own validating performance record. I felt like I was constantly trapped in insecurity. When I got to Covenant Seminary, I was there, and my very first year, I heard the gospel over and over and over again. I'd probably heard it 500 times throughout the course of my life, but what I heard when I got to Covenant Seminary is, it's not about what you don't do, BP. It's not about what you do, but rather it's about what Christ has done for you. And it was weird. It hit me like uh, something out of the blue, like a lightning bolt, and all of a sudden I realized it's not about me. It's about Jesus, right? But I had been doing what all of us naturally do, which is I was building my validating performance record uh, based upon my own performance, my own record, and saying, God, please take me. There are a lot of you in this room that do that very thing. Some of you in this room are not particularly religious, and so some of you in this room kind of go, uh, I don't, that may be true for those religious people. They're crazy, right? But I'm not one of them. I don't do this. I don't spend trying to validate myself to God. But what I would argue that even irreligious people, people that don't believe in God do, is they're, they're trapped in that same cycle of building a validating performance record. Uh, the only difference is that it's, it's much more for the world, or maybe it's for themselves, but it's almost this subconscious thing that drives every human being. Let me, let me read a quote. There's a great movie uh, called Chariots of Fire based upon the life of Eric Little and a man named Harold Abrams. It uh, chronicles their uh, running of the 100-yard dash um, in the, uh, the Olympics in France back in the 20s. I'm not sure exactly what the date was. But one of the characters, Harold Abrams, here's a picture of the, the movie character. And uh, he has a couple quotes that I'm going to read very quickly. Um, as far as I can tell in the movie, he is not particularly religious. Maybe he's irreligious. But listen to what he says as he seeks to justify himself. He says this, And now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with only ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. In other words, here's this guy as an, as an irreligious person who's basically saying, I have this drive to justify my existence based upon how I do in this, frankly, very silly little race, right? Later on in the movie, here's another quote. He's talking to one of his good friends. He says, you, Aubrey, are my my most complete man. You're brave, you're compassionate, you're kind, a content man. That's your secret, contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I am chasing. What he's basically communicating there is I'm, I'm driven to justify myself. I'm driven to, to put together this validating performance record, and I don't even know why I'm doing it, but it drives me. It informs every piece of who I am. Another, another movie reference here. I don't know how many of you have seen Saving Private Ryan. probably came out in the uh, late 90s, but it's a, a World War II movie uh, with Tom Hanks. And uh, in it, uh, there is, uh, the, the story is basically this. This is a picture of, uh, of James Ryan, who's a character in the movie. And basically, um, Tom Hanks' character, whose name is Captain Miller, leads some other men to rescue James Ryan. And uh, in the process, um, Tom Hanks' character dies, passes away. And here is the very ending scene of the movie where James Ryan is sitting at Captain Miller's grave with his family. He says this, 
He says, my family is with me today. He's, a, he's essentially speaking to Captain Miller's grave. They wanted to come with me. To be honest with you, I wasn't sure how I'd feel about coming back here. Every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge. I tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. At this point, his wife walks up to him and she puts her hand on his shoulder and she says, James, and as she looks over his shoulder, she looks at the grave and she reads Captain John Miller and she realizes who it is that he's talking to. And then old James Ryan here says this, he turns to his wife and he says, tell me I've led a good life. And she says, what? And he says, tell me I'm a good man, right? And so the power of this scene is that what Private Ryan now is an old man near to death is essentially doing is he's looking at this grave of his friend who died for him and he's saying, he says, tell me I've done enough. He's appealing uh, to Captain Miller saying, tell me I've done enough. You know, tell me I've earned it. Tell me, tell me that I, my validating performance record is enough for you to approve of. And then he not only turns uh, to his old captain, but he turns to his wife and he says to her, please, will you please validate me? Will you please justify me? Will you tell me that it's been enough? The point is that we all have this drive within us to justify ourselves, to justify our existence, whether that's overtly to God or whether it's less overtly to our fellow human beings. It's something within us. There's some standard that we know exists, and there's a standard that we know we don't measure up to, although we long to do it. Each of these men that I told you about this morning, they're riddled with insecurity. They're riddled with fears. They're always asking the question, have I done enough? Have I done enough, God? Have I done enough, wife? Have I done enough, my fellow man? The Heidelberg Catechism in uh, question 60 says this. It says, my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, fully at least. And even though I'm still inclined toward evil, nevertheless, I ask this question, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? It's this question that drives the religious people in the room and it drives the irreligious people in the room. We're all seeking to create this validating performance record to hold out there to someone, God, or someone else in order to say, have I done enough? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28, this is right in the heart of Paul building a case for why we need the gospel, why we need Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In verse 21, he says this, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance or patience, his righteousness, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness, his righteousness at the present time. So as to be the one who justifies, declares you righteous, those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of, the, of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we may maintain that a person is justified by faith or declared righteous 
by faith apart from works of the law. So what Paul is doing here is he's basically addressing this idea of justification. He's addressing this idea of the drive within you to create a validating performance record. Again, this is what Keller, Tim Keller calls it. And what he's basically saying is he's saying that in justification or in this process of declaring those of you righteous who have faith in Jesus, in justification, God is saying that our old performance record is not enough, right? He's answering that question. That question, as Harold Abraham says, you know, have I, have I earned or justified my existence? God is saying, not quite. You know, to the uh, Saving Private Ryan, to, to Private Ryan there at the very end of his life, when he's saying, have I done enough? What God is saying is, he's saying, no, you, you actually haven't done enough. But that's not actually bad news. It's actually good news. Listen to verses 21 and 23. 21 says this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Apart from the law, a righteousness of God has made been made known. Why has this righteousness of God been mentioned? Why is Paul even, even talking about it? He's talking about it because the law was never intended for us to be able to earn God's favor by keeping it. Does that make sense? You know, whether you understand the formal law from, the, from Judaism or whether it's just simply the law of being a human and loving your neighbor as yourself, essentially what Paul knows and what he's recounting here is he was saying the law or being good enough is never something that you could even do. Listen again to the second half of verse 21. To which the law and the prophets testify, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other, in other words, what we're being told here is that our old performance record, that record that we tried to use to have God accept us, that record we tried to appeal to in order to have other people accept us, that record we appeal to in order to even accept ourselves, what we're being told here is our old performance record is not enough. And that's actually good news, right? It's a little bit like a doctor saying, hey, you have cancer, right? And you can eat all the spinach and broccoli in the world that you want to. That's not going to be enough to get rid of this stuff, right? It's going to be worse. It's going to be different. It's not enough. Um, There was a man who set uh, the broad jump record. He was Norwegian back in 1968. His name was Arne Tvervag. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Any of you who know Norwegian uh, pronunciations, come and talk to me afterwards. Anyway, but Arn, back in 1968, uh, did a standing broad jump of 12 feet and 2 inches. Really just a fantastic, you know, I think if I were to do that right now, I'd get like 4 and a half feet. It would be kind of funny. Anyway, and I would probably tear my pants in the process. Anyway, <laughs> so what's interesting is um, a couple months ago, there was an NFL scouting combine, and it's, I, I can't get into this too much. But essentially what I tell you, I'll tell you is this, is that all these college football players who are graduating go to the combine and all these different um, coaches and scouts from the NFL teams watch them do their thing. They watch them bench press. They watch them run the 40-yard dash. They watch them do all this stuff. One of the events is that broad jump that Arn held the record for for you know, almost 50 years. There was a young man named Byron Jones who was a senior at UConn. He stepped up to do the standing broad jump. You can see him kind of jumping there. And, uh, and what was interesting is that they didn't, as they were filming this, they didn't really expect anything out of the ordinary. But what was amazing is they filmed it. He jumped, and he jumped 12.3 inches, right? So he beat the, the 50-year-old record set by Arn 
by an inch. And I wish we could have the video clip here because it's awesome to see the reaction of his buddies in the background because they all go crazy cheering for him. But the point is, he jumps, broad jumps further than any other human being has ever jumped. It's fantastic. It was just unbelievable. In fact, to see it, he looks like a grasshopper. He just goes boing and just jumps. It's amazing. <laughs> now, here's what's interesting. He can, so he can jump probably further than any other human being alive right now. Now, if somebody were to say, you know, we need somebody to jump over the narrowest point of the Grand Canyon, right? Who would they go talk to? They'd probably go talk to Byron, Byron Jones. They'd say, hey, Byron, you know, in order to save humanity from impending doom, we need you to try to jump over the narrowest point of the Grand Canyon. And Byron goes, you know, I can jump pretty far. Maybe I can do it. What's the distance? And, uh, and unfortunately, the bad news is that the distance is 6.4 kilometers. In other words... <laughs> He's going to fall about 6.399 whatever kilometers short of being able to jump over the Grand Canyon, right? Well, here, here's the point. The point is what's required uh, in terms of our record is perfection, and we don't get close. We don't get anywhere close to it. You know, if you were to compare Mother Teresa and if Jesus was at 100 on a 100-point scale, Mother Teresa would have been about a 6, which is really, really good, better than any other human being ever, but it's still 94 you know, points off. And I would be like a negative 11, right? I would be fluctuating day in, day out. Negative 10, negative 12. Anyway, and I'm, what I'm not saying here is I'm not saying your deeds don't matter. Because the scripture actually does teach that the way that you live your life does matter. It's a sign of your relationship with God. It's a sign of God working in your heart. But what I am saying is this, is that if you're appealing to God, saying, God, accept me, let me in, based upon your old record, then what God tells you this morning, what God tells you through the book of Romans is he says, it's not enough, right? It's not enough, and it was never intended to be. In justification, God is telling us that our old performance record just doesn't cut it. The good news is, however, that in justification, God also tells us that there is a validating performance record that is enough. The difference is it's not your validating performance record, it's the validating performance record of Jesus. Listen to the words of the Westminster Confession. This is a, a document that was written a long time ago by some very intelligent theologians. They locked themselves uh, behind closed doors for about three years in order to come up with what they believe to be a very accurate summary of Scripture. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. Here's what they have to say about this idea of justification. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies not by infusing righteousness into them. In other words, it's not like a software package that God downloads into you and then all of a sudden you're perfect, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing or any other evangelical ob obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. They receiving and resting on him, that is Jesus, and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. In other words, what the Westminster Confession just said right there is that we believe that this validating performance record that God offers to you is a performance record where he offers you forgiveness of your old record, the negative 12, right? the fact that you're 112 points off of what is required. But not only that, but also providing what you didn't have, which is the righteousness of Christ. And so the first thing that's offered there is forgiveness. Listen to first, or Colossians 1, uh, verses 13 and 14. It says this, 
For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom, that is Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I could have quoted a ton of verses here. But what was communicated in Colossians, what's communicated in Ephesians, what's communicated in 1 John, what's communicated throughout all of Scripture is that God forgives us for our sins. He forgives us for, uh, for our failures, for our brokenness. I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie Armageddon. Again, probably came out in the late 90s. There's a theme here. All of my illustrations are from when I was 27 or something. Anyway, but Armageddon is a movie. Bruce Willis, some other guys there that you would recognize. But uh, basically, this big asteroid's coming. It's going to destroy the Earth. They need somebody to go up on this asteroid in the space shuttle and uh, to plant a nuclear bomb on it and blow the thing up so it doesn't destroy Earth, right? And so basically, um, the only people that are willing to, to volunteer to go up there to do this are a team of drillers, all of whom have criminal records. And so when Bruce Willis is speaking to the representatives from the government, he basically bargains and he says, hey, we agreed that, that we'd go up and do it and risk our lives to try to save the world, right? We're humble that way. Um, but we have one request, and the request is that you wipe out all of our criminal records, right? That you forgive all of the debts that we owe to society. And of course, the government's like, well, we've got nothing to lose. Done, right? So they cancel all of those debts. So Scripture uses analogical words to talk about forgiveness. It talks about pardon, and pardon is essentially a legal term meaning the release from the penalty of an offense or a crime, right? And so those men technically were pardoned. Scripture uses the word forgiveness, which is a financial term, meaning the release or cancellation of a debt that someone owes. In other words, you have a real debt. You have a real crime that's on your sheet. And in forgiveness, God offers to wipe it clean, right? Not, not basically uh, because of your goodness or the lack of badness, but because he's willing to do it by his mercy. Jesus addresses this in Luke uh, chapter 18. Listen to this story that Jesus tells. That it's about a Pharisee, a really religious guy. And it's about a tax collector or a really irreligious guy. And hear what Jesus has to say. It says this, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Sounds kind of like an old performance record. And treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that's the religious guy, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get, right? So what is he doing? He's basically saying, hey, God, accept me because of my old performance record. It's good enough, right? But then verse 13, again, this is a parable Jesus is telling. But the tax collector, the irreligious guy, stands standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, forgive me. All I'm coming to you with is, is the question of will you forgive me? I'm asking you for mercy. I'm asking you for grace. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified or declared righteous rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself or who trusts in his old performance record will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself, in other words, trusting in Jesus' performance record, will be exalted. What God offers is to wipe your old record clean. He offers pardon. He offers forgiveness of your old record. And really, he offers technically forgiveness of your whole record because he doesn't just forgive your past sins. 
He forgives your present sins and even your future sins because the death of his son Jesus was enough to cover it all, not just for you, but for all of mankind throughout all of eternity. So God offers this new validating performance record by forgiving your sins, but he also does it by offering righteousness, a new record. Listen to the words of Romans 3 and 1 Corinthians 1. Romans 3 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We already read that once. And all are justified or declared righteous or given a validating performance record freely by his grace, that is God's grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians. It is because of him, that is God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. See, mercy is where we're not given what we deserve. Forgiveness is where we're not given what we deserve. Pardon is where we're not given what we deserve, right? This is the idea, again, of forgiveness. But here we're talking about grace. And grace is the concept whereby we are given what we don't necessarily deserve. We're given what we haven't necessarily earned. In the case of justification, we're given what doesn't actually belong to us. It belongs to someone else, right? We're given what belonged to Jesus. In this case, Jesus' record credited to our account. When I was probably uh, 8 to 10 years old, um, we had three channels on our TV. Okay, let's, let's go back in the past. I'm 43. And so when I was 7 or 8 years old, um, we had a television that got, it got three channels, right? And, uh, and believe it or not, in order to change the channels on this TV, you had to get up off of the couch, you had to walk across the room, to this square box, right? And there was a little knob on there and you twisted the knob and it would click and make really loud noises. It would go click, 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 click. And little sparks would shine behind the handle. It was really interesting. Anyway, and uh, one of the channels that we got was PBS, right? And, uh, and on it, um, once a week on Wednesday nights, and you, you had to watch it on Wednesday nights the time it came on, uh, was a show called All Creatures Great and Small, which was the story of James Harriet, who was a veterinarian. It was based on a book uh, of his memoirs, um, he was writing under a pseudonym. His last name was actually James White, I think, W-I-G-H-T. But in it, it just tells all the stories of him being uh, this rural veterinarian uh, in Yorkshire, I believe. And the story uh, here, is, you can see the book. But uh, basically in the book, uh, he's telling a story. And in the, this uh, story, he's basically saying, my wife, Joan, and I had only been married for a couple years. Uh, we were working for a veterinarian clinic in Yorkshire out in the country, and uh, I had a great boss. He said our uh, anniversary came around for whatever it was, their, their second anniversary. He said we were poor, we had very little money. And he said um, my boss knew that it was our anniversary, and he said, oh, you need to take Joan to this fancy restaurant in Yorkshire. It's, it's fantastic, it's got the best food, it's got this great ambiance. And uh, James Harriet, as he's listening to his boss describe it, he's like, oh, we, we don't have enough money to do that, man. I don't think we, that'd be wise. But the boss is insistent. You've got to take her there. It's fantastic. It'll be a great place for you to celebrate your anniversary. And so finally, James Harriet acquiesces and he says, all right, I'll take her to this restaurant. So, you know, the night comes and they get their nice clothes on and uh, they're getting ready to go on their anniversary uh, dinner at this fancy restaurant in town. And he gets a call at the last minute that there's a guy that needs him to, a farmer that needs him to check out his horse. And so he tells his wife, hey, we're on our way, but I've got to stop and check out this horse. Hopefully that didn't mean anything too nasty. Anyway, Um, But as he's there checking the horse, you know, he checks the horse, everything's fine. They get back in the car, they drive to this restaurant, they have a fantastic meal 
with uh, great food and great wine and great dessert. It's the kind of thing that they never would have been able to experience really on their own, or they wouldn't have chosen if, if the boss hadn't really insisted upon it. And James Harriet, in, this, in his book, he starts you know, saying, I, I, I began to, to prepare to pay for the bill. And he said, I reached down in my pockets, and I realized that I couldn't find my checkbook. And what had happened is his checkbook had fallen out in the mud as he'd been in the farm taking care of this farmer's horse. And so he said he sheepishly sort of beckoned the waiter over, and he said, listen, I, you know, I don't know what happened. I dropped my checkbook. I'll do anything. Whatever it takes, I'll wash dishes. I'll come back, whatever. And the waiter sort of shushed him and said, oh, no, no, it's already been taken care of. It's already been paid for. Your boss had already credited your account with enough to cover over whatever your bill was. Great story, right? Wonderful little gift for this poor newly married couple. But what the story signifies and what it illustrates is this, is that something that didn't belong to James Harriet, something that he hadn't earned, had been credited into his account so that he could go into this restaurant and have this fabulous meal without spending his money, but instead spending someone else's. That's this idea of justification, of being declared righteous, something that actually isn't ours, something that we didn't earn, something that Christ earned on our behalf that's, that's imputed or credited to us on his behalf. Now, this morning, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And we have it set up a little bit different today, but on the right-hand side of the room, down low and then up high at the exit, we have tables with bread and wine. On the left, we have, again, a table on my left and a table at the, at the upper exit with bread and grape juice. What's being communicated in the Lord's Supper is this. What's being communicated is that your old record wasn't enough, right? In fact, your old record was so not enough that, that somebody else had to provide a new record for you, and that new record was provided by Christ, who lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, right? And, and not only that, but he died a death that God wasn't willing for you to die, and he rose again, conquering not only sin, but also death, your two greatest enemies, on your behalf. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to invite you to prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And what's being communicated in the Lord's Supper is that your old record has been forgiven. That thing you did, erased. The thing that you did too many times, erased. That thing that you did that was really so bad that you thought could never be erased, it's gone. The thing that you did over and over and over again, even though you knew it was wrong, erased. You have been forgiven. You have been pardoned. But not only that, amazingly, Christ's righteousness has been given to you. And so when you take this meal today, you can know and believe that when God looks at you, he not only sees you as forgiven, he miraculously and amazingly sees you as completely perfect, righteous. That's an amazing miracle, to know that God not only looks at you and declares not guilty, but he looks at you and he says, you are perfect to me because of the life and the death and the resurrection of my son, Jesus. Now, one more qualification. This meal today is actually not for everybody. This meal today is actually only for those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation, who trust in Christ alone as their validating performance record. For those of you who haven't come to the point of trusting in Christ alone, I would simply ask that you sit back and you watch the people of God as they worship, as they experience the mercy and the grace that is offered in this meal that we call the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray um, in just a moment. Before I do that, however, I'm going to read what we call the words of institution. So hear from me, if you would, the words of institution taken from 1 Corinthians 11, and then prepare 
to, uh, to let that truth of God's mercy and his grace um, trickle down through your head all the way into your heart and let it change you. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, you invite us this morning um, to remember and to recall that, uh, that our old validating performance record um, wasn't enough, um, that it had holes in it, uh, that, it was, um, that it just didn't, didn't make it. Uh, and Father, for those of us who trust in your son Jesus, I pray that remembering our old performance record would actually be, would be good news for us, that it would be encouraging for us as we remember and recall um, the freedom that we first experienced when we realized that the blood of your son Jesus, his validating performance record on our behalf, um, was more than enough to cover up over that old record. And that because we have now the validating performance record of your son Jesus, that we by faith can come to this table this morning and that we can be confident uh, that in him, that in Jesus, and because of you, that we have mercy, that we've been forgiven, that we've been pardoned. And not only that, but Father, that, that we have grace, that you look at us and you now see us as perfect because we are hidden in your Son, Jesus Christ, in his perfection. So Father, this morning as people sit um, in, these, uh, in these seats this morning as they prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I pray that the truth of that mercy, the truth of that grace would overcome their doubts, would overcome their fears, would overcome their insecurities would overcome their desire and natural tendency to want to justify themselves to you, and that they would bow the knee, um, accepting in faith that your son Jesus paid it all on their behalf. So, Father, it is in Jesus' name, and it is in him completely that we come to you this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.